hello, hello, and welcome back to another live stream on this channel. Today, I am joined with Dr. Richard Playford. Absolutely phenomenal to have him here to talk about natural moral law, virtue ethics, and all that crazy stuff. So, how are you today, Richard? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So, anything you want to say about yourself or any introduction you want to go before we get into the PowerPoint or the lecture that you, want, you have planned? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a lecturer in religious studies at St. Mary's University in, in Twickenham, which is on the outskirts of London in the UK. Uh, my PhD is uh, in philosophy from the University of Reading. Um, yeah, and then I have an MA in philosophy and a, a BA in uh, philosophy of ancient history. Um, and my research is primarily in, in Aristotelian, Thomistic, metaphysics and ethics which we're the text of uh, natural law ethics. So that's that's my sort of academic background. I never knew you had a PhD or something in ancient history or something. What do you study uh, in uh, ancient history? A, a, a BA in, in, in philosophy of ancient history. Ah. Was that I also... I didn't speak, did I? <laughs> no worries. Uh, my... Was that the Aquinas, related to Aquinas and Aristotle? Uh, no, no, that was just when I was younger, I um, wanted to... I was just interested in I was interested in classics um, when I was doing what's what's called our, our GCSEs, which is when my 15, 16, similar system in, in Hong Kong, I'd imagine. Yeah, we do um, GCSEs. Yeah, it's quite fun. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I was doing uh, I, I enjoyed the classics, but I wasn't very good at languages. Um, I've never been terribly good at them. So I, I did ancient history, which does a lot of the same sort of stuff, but without any of the languages. And it's more historically focused and focused on the literature and again I enjoyed that at A level which is when you're 17 to 18 so but I also enjoyed philosophy so I did the two and then I decided very quickly uh, philosophy is for me not ancient history. That sounds amazing so I guess we could get into the slides now that I think you have prepared. Yeah yeah so I'm just gonna uh, I mean I, I hope it works for everybody I'm gonna do a little slideshow talk um just to introduce you to the theory and then you can ask me any question you want so do i click share and then yes i think that should work share screen platform, but... ah okay yeah and then yes Here we go how's that uh yeah i think it works now should be good. Perfect. Okay. I can't see you at the moment, so if, if I go too fast or too slow or anything like that, do just jump in and, and let me know. Sure. Okay. So we're going to look at ultimately the ethics of Aristotle because it all starts with him. And to give you a real uh, full understanding of his, his theory, we're going to start surprisingly with his metaphysics because he grounds his ethics in his metaphysics. And then we'll look at natural law theory and, and virtue ethics, which are the two modern day descendants of his view. And I'll look how Aquinas fits into all this. A little bit of background if you're interested. Aristotle, 384 BC to 322 BC. He lived in and around Greece and Macedonia. He taught Alexander the Great of Alexander the Great fame. You may have heard of him. He studied at the Academy, which was uh, the an early university run by Plato, who was a student of Socrates. 
But after failing to become the head of the academy after Plato's death, he eventually founded a rival school called the Lyceum. And he was so influential that he was simply called the philosopher by medieval Christian scholars, including Aquinas, and the first teacher by medieval Muslim scholars. So you know you've got it made as a philosopher when you've got a title like that. But again, as I said, ultimately he grounds his ethics in his metaphysics. So I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to the metaphysics. So first of all, what is it? Well, it's the branch of philosophy concerned with existence, being, and the fundamental nature of the world slash reality. Aristotle labelled it first philosophy and said it's the subject that deals with first causes and principles of things. But many philosophers will dispute these definitions and even whether metaphysics can be defined at all. And I suppose I should say meta means above or beyond or after physics. So physics is in for the study of the physical world. So it's looking at those concepts and those, those um, realities that need to be in place in order for us to do anything else, including physics including science. So what sort of questions does it answer? What is it that makes a thing what it is rather than something else? That question might seem so obvious it sort of doesn't need an answer. But when you actually try and articulate it, it becomes surprisingly complicated, surprisingly. How can things maintain their identity over time? Things are constantly undergoing change, and yet at least some things are the same, the same entity, you know, uh, today as they were yesterday and will be the same tomorrow. We still think um, they're the same thing, but they've undergone change. So how is that possible? What are the different ways in which something can be said to exist? What's the nature of causation? And so on. So we all do metaphysics, or we all have metaphysical assumptions in the back of our minds. We often can't uh, articulate them, but they are there. And the, the job of the metaphysician is to really draw them out and make them uh, explicit. I think it's best, obviously, just to jump in and I think when you see how Aristotle approaches it, you'll see the sorts of questions he's interested in. Happy, happy so far? Yep, all good. Good, so <laughs> key concepts. First of all, act and potency, which we're going we're to break down, don't worry, don't get intimidated by the, by the fancy terms. And then we're going to look at those in a little more detail and we're going to come across what, what's called the four causes cause, the material cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. So act and potency. So being in act or actuality or act the way a thing actually is. Being in potency, potentiality, the way a thing potentially could be. And so everyday objects are combinations of act and potency. They actually have certain properties and are in certain states. But potentially they could have different properties and be in different states. So right now I'm actually sitting down, but I have the potency to stand up. Yeah. And so change is thus the actualization of potency. If I change from, from sitting down to standing up, um, that my potency to stand up becomes actualized. Uh, now note, note, not all uh, changes, as, as you already know, are, are two-way, right? So sometimes you might have a potency See that once it's actualized, go back to the previous Some of them may be two ways. So, uh, if I stand up and I can, if I stand up, I can then sit back down. That's reversible. But if you bake uh, a piece of uh, pottery, uh, you know, some clay in a kiln, yeah, it, it has the 
and actually has a certain shape and has the potency to take on another shape. But if you then bake it in a kiln, it loses that potency. So that's kind of a one way, a one way change, as you as as we know in in the real world, understanding how you'd analyze it metaphysically. So when we look at these, this distinction between act components in a little more detail, we find that there are what Aristotle calls the four causes. And it's important to realize that these are not causes as we would tend to think of them. It would be better to think of them as principles or ways of standing something or aspects. Uh, so don't get hung up on the word cause. So the first is the formal cause, which is the what it is. The second is the material cause, the what it's made of. The third is the efficient cause, the where it came from. And the final cause is the what it does. Again, I'll break them down in more detail. Joshi, uh, uh, following okay? Do you think everybody's following okay? Yeah, I think everyone's following it. All good. Good. So form the what it is. So examples include really obvious things, an acorn, a ball, a human being, a, a cat, a table. It's what they actually are. Matter is the what it's made of. We're all material objects because we're all made out of matter. None of us are, are like Casper the Friendly Ghost floating around disembodied or anything like that. None of us are, are angels or ghosts. We're all material objects. And so, so we're made out of matter. And this matter is then arranged according to our form. Now, the table has four legs and a, a, a surface, a tabletop, because it's a table. Uh, a ball is, is a is a sphere. The matter is arranged in a sphere because it's a ball. This matter then has the potency to take on another form. So uh, again, the standard example involves clay. You can mould it into the shape of a statue. It therefore has the form of a statue, but you could smush it down and then mould it into the shape of a bowl. Obviously, if you bake it in the kiln, then, then it's locked in place. So hylomorphism is the theory that material objects are combinations of form and matter. So morphe means form, hylo means matter, hylomorphism, matter form. Material objects are combinations of form and matter. A material object's essence is its form instantiated in matter. So this is simply to point out that there's something about being human as a material uh, existence, uh, which means that essentially we're in matter. To be fully human involves being in matter. To be a ball, you need to be in matter. To be a tree, you need to be in matter. But if there are immaterial objects, which I think there are, but uh, if there are material objects, and their essence is the same form. And so the standard examples here are God and the angels. But they are not material objects. So they don't have any... Um, uh, material cause or anything like that. Um, so in, in that sense, their essence is just the same as their form. So this is simply a conceptual distinction. There's the what we are considered without matter, and then there's the what we are with matter, which is how we actually exist. So both matter and form are intrinsic to the object in question because they make it what it is in and of itself and without reference to any external object or principle. Now, this distinction comes from Aquinas. So I haven't I haven't talked about uh, his life and history. I've done that in, in other videos and you can find uh, plenty of information on that. 
But Aquinas was a medieval uh, philosopher and theologian, and he he took Aristotle's work and developed it and, and put his own spin on it. But one of the interesting distinctions that he makes, which I think you find in a sort of proto-form in Aristotle, if you're interested in his distinction between uh, artifacts and, and natural objects, uh, Aquinas distinguishes between what's called substantial form and accidental form. So within the concept of form, we can distinguish between a thing substantial form, which makes it what it is, and its accidental form, which simply modifies it. So flowing from a thing substantial form come its essential properties, the, thing it the things it has by merit of being the thing it is, and then a thing's accidental form is made up of its accidental properties. So to give you a concrete example, our substantial form is that of humanity. It makes us what we are. And examples of our accidental properties would include things like uh, our location, the length of our hair, our nationality, and things like that. And so you can undergo a change in your accidental form while still continuing to exist. I could apply for uh, American citizenship and go through that process, and then I'd eventually become an American citizen. I wouldn't all of a sudden cease to exist or cease to be me. There wouldn't be a new Richard that's taken my place. It would just be me who's taken on a new accidental form. Likewise, if I grew my hair longer or cut it short or anything like that. But my substantial form, that, that's locked in. That can't change. If I cease to be human, I cease to be Richard. Um, something else. So if Medusa turned you into a statue and you're, and you're now a statue, you don't exist anymore, unfortunately. Sometimes it's tricky to, to, to phrase that because I said you'd become a statue. You wouldn't be the statue. You would have ceased to exist. Hopefully the point is clear enough. And so again, form is, is intrinsic to the thing in question. I'll go back. Form is intrinsic to the thing in question. Where's your form? It's right there. Where are your accidents? They're right there. Much like your matter, which is right there. So then considering what the extrinsic determinants of things, efficient causes and final causes, efficient cause the from where it came, causing the way we tend to think of it, what actualizes or creates an object and so on. So there may be more than one, but two of your efficient causes are your parents. And if you're uh, sitting on a wooden chair, then that the efficient cause of the chair is, is the carpenter who made it or the factory who made it or something like that. We then have the final cause, the what it does, which is the way or ways of things characteristically behaves. Or perhaps I think, looking back, I think I actually should phrase that a little bit more precisely. Technically, it's the end states to which a thing's characteristic behaviours point. So, as an example, uh, one of the ends of an acorn is to grow uh, roots and to grow a, a, a trunk and branches and leaves and in turn to produce acorns of its own. So its ends are to become a fully functioning adult oak tree. Um, so it's not just the growth itself, it's, it's the whole package. An object's final causes are also sometimes called its ends, and there may be more than one. An object's ends are defined by its form. What it is determines what it does. Because it's an acorn, acorn it will grow into an oak tree, or because it's a ball, it will roll downhill. 
And as I said, efficient and final causes are the application of the theory of act and potency applied to the extrinsic determinants of things. Because the, uh, <clears throat> it's efficient causes and the ends to which it points are all external to it. You're not your parents and <clears throat> uh, rolling downhill is not a ball and so on and so forth. Happy with that? Yes, it's all good. And there's a question that I think someone asked, which of course there would be a more longer question and answer section at the end of the video, but there's a question on like what we're talking right now, which is what are the main differences between substantial form and platonic form? Uh, I'll, I'll, excellent question. Uh, I'm pleased to see that that means that person's following on really well. I will come on to that in a, in a little bit. Yeah, so it's all good. But ultimately, all of Aristotle's four causes follow from his distinction between act and potency. Efficient causes actualize, create or change things. Final causes are a subset of a thing's potencies, those which flow from its form. A thing's form is actualized in matter when an object is created, God and the angels aside. The matter out of which material objects are made has the potency to take on other forms. Uh, and so on and so forth. So to answer uh, the, the person's questions, the distinction between Aristotelian uh, forms and Platonic forms is in their location. So for Plato, there's the realm of forms, this heavenly uh, other, I don't know how to describe it, dimension, universe, uh, plane of existence, where the form of humanity exists perfectly, the form of being a dog, being green, being red, of the good and the true, and so on and so forth. So they're, they're up there. And then the objects down here in our realm imperfectly partake in those. So all of us partake in the form of humanity. None of us are perfectly human. There's little imperfections in us, but we all partake in that. For Aristotle, there is no platonic realm of the forms. Your form is right there. My form is right here. We might have the same form, but it's instantiated twice. Here's mine, there's yours. So there is no platonic realm of the forms. So that's the important distinction. Similarly, redness, if you've got a, a red ball, where's the redness? It's right there. The form of redness is right there. It's not partaking in any otherworldly form of redness. So we, and so that then brings on to the idea of universals. Universals exist as shared essences considered in abstract. So for, for Plato, the forms are the universals. There's, there's the form of humanity that all human beings universally share in. For Aristotle, however, a universal only exists in the mind. I look at your humanity, I look at your humanity, look at your humanity, and I abstract away from them and go, oh yeah, they've got something in common, they're all humans. But as a universal, it only exists in my mind. Forms themselves just exist as individuals right there. I hope that answers that question. So to summarize, material objects are actually certain ways, but potentially in others. There's something in particular, form. We can consider what things are in abstract, universals, they're made up of matter, material causes, and they are created and changed by other objects, efficient causes, and they, well, they characteristically behave in certain ways, which is directed towards certain end states, their ends or their final cause. 
Okay, so I appreciate the fact that that might have felt like a bit of a weird aside. But what we're going to see is that Aristotle and then later Aquinas ground uh, their ethics in their metaphysics. So we're going to look at both virtue ethics and natural law theory. The reason I'm going to do that is one, they're very closely related. So if you've got one, you might as well do the other. Uh, and uh, two, they're both very popular within the Christian tradition, particularly in the Catholic and Anglican churches. But there's nothing to stop you from being from another denomination and uh, subscribing to it. Um, and then the, the final question I want you to sort of think about throughout this is, are they mutually exclusive? Because there's a, a number of people who think that really two sides of the coin. Uh, and I, I think that's probably what I think. Uh, and I think there are advantages to that, which again, we can back around in the discussion a bit if you want. But we're going to look at virtue ethics and natural law. So I'm going to explain how Aristotle and other Aristotelians ground their ethics in their metaphysical schema. It's important to note that not all Aristotelians will do this. So some will jump straight to the virtues or goods, more on that in a moment, without any metaphysical analysis. For example, the new natural law theorists. Again, Alex. The traditional Aristotelians ground an Aristotelian ethical schema in an Aristotelian metaphysical schema. And so some examples here are the classical natural law theorists, such as David Oderberg. We'll look at his theory in a little bit. And some virtue ethicists. The virtue ethicists who tend to do this are in, invariably Christians. This view can be contrasted with, say, modern uh, Aristotelians who separate Aristotelian ethics from Aristotelian metaphysics. And these include what are called the new natural law theorists, e.g. John Finnis, who, who is, who is a, a, a Catholic, a, a Christian. So you can be a new natural law theorist and a Christian, that's fine. And then other virtue ethicists who don't ground it in the metaphysics, they tend to be more non-Christians, non non-believers, non although again, there are always exceptions. Traditional Aristotelians begin with a metaphysical analysis of human nature, Whereas modern Aristotelians jump straight into the basic goods or the virtues. Okay. So recall Aristotle's metaphysics. He thinks that we all have a substantial form. And he thought that the form of humanity was rational animality. We're animals because we've got bodies and we engage in the three Fs, feeding, fighting, fornicating. Right. We're animals and we need to be upfront about that. But we're distinctive in that we're rational and that transforms our animality in important and interesting ways. And for him, those were the most important elements of what makes us us. Um, we could appeal to our, our bodily structure and so on and so forth. And the, you know, the fact that we've got uh, ten, 10 fingers and four limbs and ten toes, we could we could appeal to all of that, but those somehow seem less important than our rationality and our animality. And that also explains why when we, we think about intelligent aliens, like, like in the film E.T., one of the reasons we empathise with him and we feel a sort of kinship with him is because he's also a rational animal. But he, I don't think he had ten, 10 fingers, I think he had six, but I, I haven't seen the film in ages. Hopefully you get the idea. The important bit is that we're rational and we're animal. 
our form, that of rational animals, gives us certain ends, certain ways we ought to be and behave. Unlike inanimate objects and plants, and then animals, a deliberate question mark there, we can then choose whether or not to fulfill these ends. So there's a moral dimension to our ends in a way that there isn't for inanimate objects and plants in anything but a very trivial sense. Plants and inanimate objects will always fulfill their ends if the circumstances permit and there's nothing stopping them. Thus, they always behave as they should. So it's, it's in the Northern Hemisphere, it's springtime here. I've been planting some tomatoes. Uh, few have survived and it's enough for, for my purposes, so I'm pleased. But uh, quite a few of them died and I haven't quite worked out why. I think it's because they didn't get quite enough sunlight. But I didn't blame the tomato plants for being immoral. I thought there's something stopping them from flourishing, and that was, I think, because they didn't get quite enough sunlight. But when a human being doesn't fulfill their ends, potentially we, we morally blame them. It, it might depend on the circumstances, if they're, they're mentally unwell or they're sick or anything like that, then obviously that, that explains it. But if they're well and they do something that they shouldn't, then there's potentially at least moral blame. So we can choose whether or not to fill our ends, we can choose whether or not we will behave as we should. You can see how we get from the metaphysics to the ethics. So both classical natural law theorists and some virtue ethicists will agree on this so far, but now they begin to come apart. Natural law theorists will now derive a list of human goods and or human rights that flow from our ends. Thus, their interest in what we ought to do and have, pursue, promote, and so on, considered externally. This is because the human goods are external to the humans. Uh, to humans, you may remember uh, uh, I said earlier the the ends are extrinsic to the object in question. They're not the humans. They're not the humans themselves, nor an aspect of humanity. Instead, there are things you have, promote, pursue, defend, and so on. So what are the, the goods? Here's a sort of sample list uh, that different thinkers have given. And again, we can dig into this in more detail. And there's a lot of detail here, obviously. Uh, I'm sort of slightly skipping over some steps for the, for the sake of time and clarity, but I hope you can see why they've picked these sorts of things. So John Finnis, life, knowledge, play, aesthetic experience, friendship, religion, practical reasonableness. Alfonso, yes, you may remember as a new natural law theorist. Alfonso Gomez Lobo, life, the family, friendship, work and play, the experience of beauty, knowledge, integrity. Uh, chapel tends to just have a bit of everything. Life, truth, and the knowledge of truth, friendship, aesthetic value, physical and mental health and harmony, pleasure in the avoidance of pain, reason, rationality, and reasonableness, the natural world, people's fairness, achievements, the contemplation of God, if God exists. Mark Murphy, life, knowledge, aesthetic experience, excellence in play and work, excellence in agency, inner peace, friendship and community, religion, happiness. David Oderberg, life, knowledge, friendship, work and play, the appreciation of beauty, religious belief and practice. So uh, David is, is a classic natural law theorist. And then if you're interested in, in my own uh, views, uh, life and health, both mental and physical, family, friendship uh, and community, aesthetic experience, uh, potentially rationality, knowledge, uh, and religion, broadly conceived. What we would what we would say is that these things, uh, 
correspond to our ends. These are the things to which human beings are directed. A fully uh, flourishing, happy, complete human being has all of these things. Uh, prioritize some over others, and the, maybe some they, they, they can't pursue at all, and then they pursue others in, in turn. But these are the sorts of things that they're interested in. So though we've now arrived at a list of goods, a list of values, we still need some more concrete guidance on what we actually ought to do and not do in the real world. The natural law theorists now take one of two options. The first is to derive a list of rights from the basic goods, and from this a list of duties. The second is to derive a list of duties from the basic goods, and from this potentially a list of rights. So some natural law theorists will argue that relating to each good, there's a relevant right. For example, if life is a basic human good, then we must have a right to life and the right not to be killed. If knowledge is a basic human good, then we must have the right uh, not to be deceived, at least not uh, all other things being equal. You, you might want to add some caveats to that. Um, of that remains to be seen. And from the right to life, presumably it follows that we have a duty not to kill. After all, if they have the right not to be killed, then presumably we have a duty not to kill them. And perhaps then duties and rights are simply two sides of the same coin. As a term of art, a duty not to do something is sometimes called a negative duty, and a duty to do something is sometimes called a positive duty. Likewise, sometimes philosophers distinguish between positive rights, which are sort of rights to something, and education, and negative rights, which is the right sort of not to be interfered with when it comes to that thing. Uh, if you're interested, I don't take this approach, I take the other approach. And the reason is, I, it seems to me that uh, negative rights and negative duties follow very naturally from this analysis. And although I can see how you might go about getting positive rights and positive duties, I worry that the, the uh, strength of those rights and duties might not be quite so obvious. So I tend to uh, take this opposite approach. And where we go from goods to duties. So a natural law theorist might argue that we ought to promote the basic human goods. We obviously ought to promote them in our own lives, since it makes us better off. But we also ought to promote them in the lives of others. You know, we're sociable and communal creatures. So Aristotle also calls us political animals. And by our very nature, and this entails that we ought to help each other and cooperate with each other. My good and your good, they're interlinked. So we have a series of duties to promote and protect the basic goods, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. So knowledge is a basic good. So we have a duty not to lie, at least all other things being equal, and a duty to tell the truth. Life is a basic good, so we have a duty uh, to save people when we're able to do so. Things like that. And then we can derive a list of rights from a list of duties by switching our perspective. If I have a duty not to kill you, then presumably you have the right not to be killed by me. And again, in this sense, duties and rights are two sides of the same coin. So just, uh, and so again, another thing to point out, the two strategies that natural law ethicists take, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, so uh, I, know, I know David personally, David Oderberg, he takes the approach where he goes from the goods to rights to duties. I take the approach where I go from goods to duties to rights. And when we've discussed it, there hasn't been any major disagreement on, the, on that point. It's just a preference for which 
which way is more fruitful. And I've explained why I prefer this way. Here's a summary of natural law. If you're a classical natural law theorist, you start with essence or nature, rational animality. From that, you derive a list of human ends. From that, you derive a list of basic human goods. The new natural law theorists jump straight in at the basic human goods. They don't engage in the previous steps. And from that, we all derive a list of duties and rights. So that's natural law uh, ethics. Josh, is that is that okay, everybody? Yep, it's all good, I think. I think there's following that. Yeah, I think everything's good. Checking the chat, there's yeah. not any questions about it right now, so it's really all good. Good, good. Yeah, if there are any sort of clarifying questions, and do feel free to share those. So virtue ethicists, rather than deriving a list of goods that flow from our form and end, they instead derive a list of virtues that flow from our ends. So they're interested in what we ought to do, and more importantly, be considered internally. And why this is becomes clear when we examine the definition of a virtue. The Rosalind Hursthouse, not, not a religious thinker, um, but you know, just she, she offers a, a good definition. A virtue is a character trait a human being needs to flourish or live well. And so a virtue is something internal to us since it's a character trait which we should possess. And the opposite of a virtue is a vice. Uh, again, as a term of art, so when a virtue ethicist calls someone, someone vicious, they don't necessarily mean that person is cruel. So in contemporary English, vicious is kind of a synonym with cruel. Cruelty would be a vice, but it wouldn't be the only vice. So someone who's lazy would also be vicious because they've got this vice. So that's, that's the broader sense of the term vicious. And then someone who has the virtues is virtuous, virtuous and vicious. That's where the word comes from. For some reason, vicious now is equated with cruelty, which is only one vice. So a person who fulfills all their ends will have a wide variety of virtues, of which, according to Aristotle, the intellectual virtues are the best. And the reason he thinks that is because we're rational animals. The other uh, virtues, at least to some extent, are more based in our animality. You don't need to follow him in that. A virtuous person who behaves as they should will live a good life, and Aristotle calls this eudaimonia which is sometimes translated as flourishing. Uh, sometimes it's also translated as happiness. I don't particularly like that uh, translation because it, it doesn't have quite the right connotations. We think of happiness as being a sort of subjective psychological state. Eudaimonia is much broader than that. You know, it's a person being and doing everything that they should do and be. And so one would hope that that person enjoys a degree of psychological contentment and joy and so on and so forth. But it's much more than just that. So the goal of human existence, according to Aristotle, is to achieve eudaimonia. Uh, Aquinas kind of takes this idea and he, he suggests that the goal of human existence is to achieve beatitudio, which is kind of eudaimonia plus an experience or the vision of God. So for Aristotle, uh, for for Aquinas to be uh, fully complete as a human being, ultimately we need God. We can only get so far by ourselves. According to Aristotle, we can do it all ourselves. 
So each of the virtues is between two extremes, not too much, not too little. And this idea is called the golden mean. So as an example, bravery lies between cowardice and foolhardiness or rashness. I won't read them all out because a lot of them. Uh, this is the list that Aristotle gives in his Nicomachean Ethics. I'll, I'll pause the buttons if you want to read it. You can pause the video. As you can see, excess deficiency and then the mean, and you'll note that it applies to all areas of life. So again, a summary of virtue ethic, ethics. If you're being sort of really traditional about it, you start with your essence or nature, human ends, and then virtues. If you're a more contemporary virtue ethicist, they tend to just jump in at the virtues. And then uh, eventually from that, you derive a list of duties and rights. The reason I put a question mark there is for two reasons. One, uh, I haven't explored that in this lecture because it takes a bit more time. I'm mindful of, of limits. Uh, the other is that uh, standard criticism of virtue ethics is that it struggles to give us really clear uh, advice on how to behave and what to do and so on and so forth. And thus, it struggles to drive a clear list of duties and rights. So that's one of the standard criticisms of it. So I put that in a question mark for you to think about. So bringing it all together, we looked at a couple of different things. We looked at Aristotle, we looked at his metaphysics, we briefly looked at some of the uh, additions that Aquinas made, and then we looked at his ethics, and then natural law theory and virtue ethics. Now, normally Aquinas is considered the sort of father of natural law theory, and Aristotle is considered the father of virtue ethics. But the reality is that uh, Aquinas himself spent more time discussing the virtues than he did discussing natural law. Uh, so you could see him as either a virtue ethicist or a natural law theorist. Aristotle does dedicate most of his time to the virtues. Uh, but, you know, as you've seen, natural law theorists really do ground it in you know, the Aristotelian metaphysical schema. So my own take is I wouldn't view them as mutually exclusive. Uh, Sometimes I um and are about that, and sometimes I'm, I'm not so certain, but I think they're probably just two sides of the same coin. One considered externally, the basic human goods, one considered internally, the virtues. And potentially the nice thing about that is they correct uh, each other's weaknesses whilst enjoying each other's strength. Some readings, if you're interested, uh, some suggestions. Some of them are more technical than, than others. Uh, at the bottom there, Rusche for Landau's The Fundamental of Ethics. That's that's a really standard introduction to ethics, a book that lots of undergraduates read. So that's a, a good one to start with if you're a complete uh, beginner. He looked at all sorts of different ethical theories in, in lots of detail. And ultimately, he, he comes down against natural law theory and virtue ethics. But it will at least give you an introduction to it. Um, you can read the original Aristotle, The Nicomachean Ethics. Ed Fesser's Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, is really good for um, uh, understanding the metaphysics of Aquinas. Not so much detail on the ethics. Uh, for more detail on the ethics, David Oderberg's you know, Moral Theory, A Non-Consequentialist Approach, and John Finnis's Natural Law and Natural Rights, although that's a hefty, hefty tome, so just be aware of that. Anyway, those are some suggestions, uh, you know, if you're interested. So I shall stop sharing now. Good. 
How how is that? Am I muted or are you? I can't hear you, Josh. Are you? Can you hear me? Okay, I think. Can you hear me now? Ah, I can hear you now. Yeah, I think something my my other mic with kind of. It's gone a bit haywire. It's all gone white or something. So, I I will. There's a question by uh, Justin Quark, uh, who says, "So does this mean that virtue ethicists believe that a virtue is not external to a person?" Um, I mean, I suppose it's external in the sense that you know, a virtue is not a person. Um, so in that sense, it, it's conceptually uh, external, but it's something that we have. So uh, I guess the short answer is yes and no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I suppose then I, I guess you raised a bit about the objections against the virtue ethical theories, but what do you think are your favorite arguments against the natural moral, moral law theories, or like some of the arguments that are opposed against that? I mean, the, the biggest uh, objection I seem to run up against when talking to other philosophers about this is they find the idea of teleology of, of ends of final causes so teleology goal directedness ends and final causes they they just can't get their heads around that um and i often you know I, and when i was first introduced to it you know i really struggled with it and i think the reason for that is because there's lots of different ways of conceptualizing teleology and due to various developments in the history of philosophy, the, the dominant form of teleology that people thought of was a very, very theistic uh, form. So again, note that this is compatible with theism, and indeed, I think ultimately leads to theism, but it was a very sort of tight link where uh, goals and teleology, that's only because God is, is very literally ordering it uh, towards it. And as the world then became more... Uh, atheistic uh you get rid of god you've got to get rid of the teleology and so i think there's a strong teleology of any sort uh but it seems to me that uh aristotelian teleology uh was never correctly dealt with it was never it just kind of got forgotten about uh you know, uh, due to, I mean, they've always been, uh, you know, a cohort of Aristotelians working away throughout history, but it just wasn't the dominant view due to various trends. Um, one of the things that Aquinas did is he does then link it to, to, to God. Uh, to be fair, so does Aristotle then slightly way. Um, but you kind of get God in by the back door. So anyway, so I think that there's a strong uh, bias against uh, any form of teleology. But what I sort of like to point out is, look, you know, uh, if you put a seed in the ground and you water it and the sunlight and all of that sort of thing, do you think it's going to sprout and grow roots? And if the answer to that is yes, well, well, well why is that? Because that's that's what seeds do. Um, and that's teleology. You can also say things like, you know, do, do plants need sunlight? I'm on a plant theme for some reason. <laughs> do wolves live in packs? Yeah, this is teleology. It's what they're directed towards doing. 
again, the standard response they would make is, well, yeah, but we can just analyze that in terms of efficient and material causes. You can just look at the mechanical causal chains. And that sort of response to that is, but they're not mutually exclusive. All of the four causes are linked. What it is defines what it does. What it's made of limits what it can be and what it can do. Um, well, and so on and so forth, you know. Um, so it's all it's all interlinked. Um, so I, I just don't, you know, I think the scientist is just interested primarily in, in what I would call efficient and material causes. They may not use Aristotelian language, but that doesn't mean the other, you know, the idea of form or the idea of ends. It doesn't mean that you're disposing of them. They're they're still there. You're just not paying attention to them. And again, the thing I would point, I would then point out, is that I think that's true in physics and chemistry, but in biologically teleological. Now, if you look in any biology textbook, you know, what's the heart for to pump blood around the body? That's teleology. You know, what are lungs for to move oxygen in and out of the, the blood? That's teleology. And it's and one of the things that some contemporary philosophers of biology have tried to do is they've tried to sort of rewrite biology textbooks without any reference to any teleology. And you know, it, en it ends up becoming really weird because they, they can't say the heart is for pumping blood. What they have to say is in evolutionary history, the hearts that didn't pump blood was, were selected out and that meant that the current hearts that do exist do pump blood around the body. It's like, okay, <laughs> fine. I suppose Wouldn't building on... Yeah, go on. Yeah, hearts are easier to pump blood around the body. And then... What they even end up having to do, for example, is they have to reject the idea that illness is a real category. There is no way the body should be. So a body riddled with parasites and bacteria is, that's one type of body, and a body that's healthy is another type of body. So they have to jettison health and illness as, as real concepts. They'd say they're still useful fictions, you want to be healthy, but they don't think they're ontologically real. So there is no such thing as illness now? I'll, I'll stick to my teleology, thank you. So I think there's something that a lot of people hear building on the previous point is like the ends justify the means and the, or the means do not just the ends do not justify the means and I guess if you'd think teleology sometimes people get that in mind it's like the ends justify the means or the ends do not justify the means like how do you think if someone says well perhaps if you have a good end but then the way you get to that end is not really too efficient or too helpful how how would that kind of balance out with like the means kind of balance out or the the badness of the means balance out with the goodness of the ends or how does that kind of interact with each other so in the moral realm how do does the question do we end up becoming consequentialists where anything is, is permissible as long as we're pursuing a good end is that yeah kind of that's the idea yeah so it, it I, that's where the details needed so if you dig down into um the literature in more detail uh looking at how the different goods interact and how our different duties interact and so on and so forth uh, and and how the concept of rights interact there ends up becoming I think common sensical statements about what you can and can't do. So, according to the natural law theorist, just because you're pursuing um, truth doesn't mean that you can do, you know, you, you couldn't experiment on innocent people in order to pursue truth, you know, biological truths. 
no, because that would be infringing on their right to life, for example, their right to... So when you kind of bring it all together, th then you end up ruling out certain behaviors. So, so they're not consequentialists, uh, at least not traditionally. I, I suppose, you know, it would be an interesting project to see whether you could create a sort of consequentialist version of natural law theory, but <clears throat> I don't know of any that are out there in the contemporary literature. I think my friend Thinker's Kitchen has been very, well, I don't know, prescient today. He's been predicting everything that we're going to be talking about quite a while before we actually even talk about it. He says, while most people's goods follow a similar theme, is there any objective way to find out what goods are more good or more appropriate than others? No, that's a really good question. Is he the same guy from before? Yeah, he's the guy who asked about this, the, what, what was it? He, he's the one who asked about the platonic forms and the substantial forms. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. Um, so a few a few points on that. First, if you go back in the in the video and look at the list of uh, uh, basic human goods, the different natural law theories, you'll note that there's a, a lot of overlap. Like far more, I would say. So one of the themes that always popped up is life, uh, truth, uh, beauty, and then usually community uh, in some form or other, or, or family or friendship, something like that. Those always crop up. Everybody's agreeing on that. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but when you look at the contemporary philosophical, ethical world, when you've got the utilitarians and then other sorts of consequentialists, and you've got Kantians and Rossians and contractarians and contractualists, and... Uh, encouraging sign which suggests I think there's something to this method. In terms of uh, how we work it out in a sort of objective way, I would say it's by paying very close attention to our capacities and abilities as human beings and then thinking very carefully about what's called the level of specificity. So, to give you an example, um, one of our capacities is the capacity to think. Okay. Oh, just to think about anything. Well, that seems a bit too broad. You know, one could think about murdering somebody. That wouldn't be a good thing to think about. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to get it too uh, specific either. You don't want to say, for example, the only good thought is thought about mathematics. Any other form of thought isn't good. And so you don't want to be too specific. You don't want to be too broad. So what, what would be an appropriate uh, overall end? Well, it might be the pursuit of truth, and the pursuit of rationality. That's, that's sufficiently broad uh, that it allows for the variety of things that we can think about whilst also being, uh, whilst also not being too specific. I've got, I've got mixed up. You can see the point. It's not too broad or too specific. Now, obviously, there's always going to be disagreements and, and difficulties there. But if you can end up roughly in that space and then you can reason it through, there tends to be a lot of agreement, which is what we see reflected. So is it a bulletproof identical list? No. But is it pretty good? I, I think so. Um, 
Yeah, and I, again, I think you know, looking at things like life and health. I mean, you know, uh, I mean that's, that that seems completely uncontentious because you know, that's a necessary prerequisite for any other good. Um, it's part of being a biological you know, creature that we have bodies that need to be maintained and looked after and, and need to be healthy. So you know, that one, you know, couldn't be couldn't be more obvious. Um, and again, uh, w w with regard, for example, how do we arrive at family? as a good. Well, human beings have the ability to reproduce, okay? Um, but obviously all the animals have that, and there's lots of different ways of reproducing. So what's distinct about human beings? Well, our young need to be raised to be able to die, so we need to raise. So we need, at the very least, a mother-child relationship, and then we also observe that, uh, you know, uh, humans tend to be monogamous, that men uh, undergo various sort of hormonal and chemical changes when they're, I know this because I'm a young father, but apparently you know, what happens once men start cuddling babies, they get the same hormonal changes that women get. You know, that's a nice piece of modern science that backs up something we knew all along. So fathers want to be involved and we know about the psychological benefits to the children of that. We know that you know, mums and dads working together tend to support each other. Doesn't mean that single parent families aren't good, not saying that doesn't mean that you know there aren't other forms of family. Of course not. I'm just saying, in some sense, family is is clearly good. But you can see how how we're making progress. There's there's still ambiguities. There's still questions. So some natural law theorists are really really conservative, and they would say family has this is the definition of a family, and if it's not this, it's not a family. Some natural law theorists will say, well, there's all sorts of different families, and what matters is it's a family. For the sake of this talk, I'll you know I'll leave it there. So I, I was thinking about something how all these like it seems to be coming out from this fundamental kind of idea of it's it's supporting life, supporting these ideas, and and I was just wondering how separable is natural moral law theory from its theistic roots. I, I mean like I know there's a lot of people like you've said that are kind of not Christians, but also support natural moral law theory and virtue ethics. But then at the same time, it seems that a lot of these kind of core criteria do seem to have a lot of biblical or religious roots at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you my my take on it then. Um, I think it follows from the metaphysics of Aristotle and then expanded upon by Aquinas, which I think is the correct metaphysical one we've got. Uh, it follows from that that God, the classical God of theism, must exist. And I've got, I've been interviewed uh, about that by, by your, your friend. I can't remember the name of his channel. Uh, uh, Adherent Apologetics. Yeah, he's yes, a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was a really good interview. So do do check that out. Um, yeah, he interviewed me about teleological arguments, and I I gave a, a mystic one, um, and there are others too, other other arguments too, not just that. Uh, so I think it follows from the metaphysics that um, God must exist, and when you look at Aquinas's arguments, it, it also follows that from the teleology that God must exist, and in that sense, it's completely. It, it can't be separated from the existence of God. Um, you can see, however, why that's kind of being smuggled in through the back door, because let's say I can talk about the metaphysics and I can talk about the ethics without talking about God. So they can be discussed separately. 
They can be conceptually separated. When you analyze the metaphysics, which also gives you the ethics, you end up also getting God. But the link is less tight than in uh, divine command theory. Uh, to talk about ethics is to talk about God. And we talk about the ethics, we go back to the metaphysics, and then we can go from the metaphysics to God. So in that sense, I, I don't think it can be separated, but the, it's not as conceptually tight as in divine command theory. In terms of uh, the fact that it often matches up with uh, traditional uh, Christian teachings and with lots of biblical uh, teachings on, on ethics and this, that and the other, well, maybe that tells you, you know, we're on to something. <laughs> if they're coming to the same conclusion, maybe, maybe that tells you something. I think this ties perfectly to another person who also seemed to have foreshadowed everything. Not the same guy as before, but another guy. My my chat seems extremely prescient today. So he says, "Do you think it's how how interlinked is natural moral law theory to the Bible, and is there any like direct con like links between the Bible and a natural moral law?" Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I would say, you know, read them. Um, together and read one in light of the other. Um, the Bible uh, obviously provides lots of good ethical guidance, but it doesn't cover everything. It can't. No, no one book could. Uh, it also uh, can be difficult to interpret. You know, it's in a particular historical you know, context and genres and all of that sort of thing. And so natural law theory can supplement it by filling in some of the some of the blanks. And I would say that what it also does is it provides a sort of uh, conceptual underpinning for why you know, God through the prophets or whatever is giving that command. Um, and so, so when God tells, you know, Israel to worship only him, and you'll notice that many of the natural law theorists gave religion as a, as a good, um, or when, you know, God says, you know, don't don't murder the reason he's doing that is not because he's a megalomaniac it's because he wants us to flourish he wants us to live well and that seems to be an encouraging thought you know it's it's for our own good that's why god tells us to do it not because he wants to control us as if we follow his commands we will we will live well and that's what we want to do right uh, and natural law theory can explain that in a, in a more explicit way than, than I would say scripture can, as far as I'm aware, scripture doesn't explicitly uh, state that. So as it says things like God wants, you know, loves us and wants the best for us, and then he, and then he gives us commands, so you could infer it. But yeah, they're two different paths to the same truth, hopefully. Definitely. So do you think it's kind of like a development in the same way of divine commands theory? Like it's some people like to see some divine command theories like oh divine command theories is the only thing we can follow and stuff like that so like how do you think it interacts with divine command theory and other like theistic yeah. ideas i think um there's a sense in which you can be both um you'll, you'll notice the hesitancy in my voice <laughs> uh particularly if you subscribe to Thomistic physics because due to various technical reasons based on Aquinas's uh, fifth way, I think it is, uh, our form and ends are what they are because of God and because of God holding us in existence. And God does that analogously through a you know, sort of speech speaks us into existence and holds us in existence. And so there's a sense in which you can be a natural law theorist and you can say, yeah, you know, murder is wrong because God commands it to be wrong for, for us. 
Uh, and then and then what would you interpret that metaphysically? Ah, well, God created us in such a way that that's one of our ends. In that sense, yeah, you could be a divine command theorist and a natural law theorist. Um, I think that's a little bit cheeky. Um, I think that probably they are, at least as most divine command theorists think of it, mutually exclusive. Uh, well, not mutually exclusive, but I think they're competitors. Uh, um, got a lot of thoughts coming around. Another thing to note <laughs> is that Aquinas does does accept that God could then command. He, you know, we've got our natural law. God could then top that up with an additional law, which which he gives us as a command. So in that sense, he can be a divine command theorist, and God thinks we ought to obey that because of who God is. Um, just to be clear, God isn't bound uh, solely by the natural law. God could say, right, I want you to do this and then you would be obliged to do it. Just to make that clear. But in terms of is it all ethics ground like that? Command theorists, it seems to me, does. You know, why is X wrong? The divine command theorist, the first person you look at is God. Aquinas says, look first at human nature, unless it's a special command. Look at human nature. And then from that, eventually we can get back to God. So I, I do think they are different approaches. I suppose there's one last question for today. I think we could wrap off with how important do you think moral freedom is to mankind? Would it be better if humans had no freedom, but also did only good? Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the things that I'm interested in at the moment is the, uh, well, it, it, it's, it's a project I'll get to in a, in a year or two, because I've got some things to do in the meantime. I was talking to a friend about this too, about you know what do we even mean by free will? And the, the problem is, the more I study it, the less I'm sure I I know. But I, you people have probably heard it before, but I think it's really insightful, and I think that's where we should start. Which is that you know, you know and 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 we know this from our own experience. God isn't interested in robots that just love him because they have to. Um, God wants creatures who, whatever that means, can choose to love him, and then that allows for the risk of choosing not to love him and choosing to disobey him and so forth. And that I mean, as important, something, something really crucial about choice. Similarly, there's something really crucial about being human that means that we have choice. You know, part of rationality for Aristotle is, is having, and for Aquinas is having a will, the ability to choose. So if God wants us, he couldn't have us as robots. That wouldn't be, they wouldn't be human. They'd be robots, sort of biological robots. They wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be human. And I think that this is sort of borne out by the fact, that, for example, you know, nobody would trade their living dog, or I, I don't think, their living dog for a little robot dog. Yeah, the little ones that yap and then they jump backwards and some of them can say, I love you. Nobody would trade their real dog for that. Well, and I'm not saying a dog has free will in the way that we do, but you can see how it's, I think there's some real intuitive sense to that. So that's sort of where I want to start this. Eventually it will become a little project, something I'll try and really answer in more detail. But that's certainly my starting point. There must be something correlating to free will. And that's obviously good because it's a prerequisite, I think, one, for being human and two, for having genuine relationships. A bit of a wordy answer, but hopefully that answers the question. That sounds absolutely fantastic. So I guess for those who are watching, if you're interested in anything that 
Richard is doing and also that project which he might be working on and coming out in one or two years time make sure you check out his YouTube channel which I have pinned in the live chat and also in the description below you can check out his work there and also in other places as well it's absolutely amazing thank you so much for coming on today glad that you're here and finally hope like always have a great one stay safe have fun with friends and family if COVID restrictions allow it. Stay safe, God bless, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for watching.